Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for being here. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you'd want us to see and guide this study. And we thank you for the one that is here and that you bless those who aren't here. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 16. We've been talking about the omnipresence, omnipotence of God. And in verse 16, And Lebanon shall not, is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for burnt offerings. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will you liken God, or what image will you compare unto him? The workman melts a graven image, and the goldsmith spreads it over the gold and casts silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he has no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks unto him a cunning workman to repair a graven image that he shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? that it is he that sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretched out over the heavens as a curtain and spreads out them out as a tent to, to dwell in, that brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges to rule of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, they, their stocks shall not take root in the earth and he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as a stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or who or shall I be equal, says the, Lord, the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, and brings out the host by number. He calls them by their names, or the, by the greatness of his might, for, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why say you, O Jacob, and speaks you, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over for, from my God. Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is he weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail, fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All right, so we see here Isaiah painting a beautiful picture of God and his power and his strength and his knowledge. And he starts out in verse 16. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast sufficient for the burnt offering. And what he's saying here is there's not enough offerings available to please God. And, you know, and really, in truth, that is absolutely true. We all sin so much that even if we had offerings, we would never be sufficient offerings. It took Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins, and he was the only one sufficient for that. And he goes in verse 17, All the nations before him are as nothing. They, encountered, they are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. So um, there's not enough sacrifices, and God doesn't have any nation that he looks at and says, this is the one I have to be with. Now, Israel came close. Israel was the one he chose to be his people. But when he's looking at him, he goes, you're nothing either. You're not good enough. There's not enough sacrifices to make you good enough. And, there's, and this is the thing about it is, God's standard is perfection. Our good works are worthless. Our great deeds are worthless. And then we sin and make it even worse. 
And he says, there's not enough sacrifices, and even the whole of all the nations, there's nobody there. There's none righteous, no, not one, is what he's saying in this. And this is uh, Isaiah's message to the people. You think, you're, you think you're it. You think you're God's people. You think you are got it all made in the shade. He goes, you are nothing, and there's nothing that you have a great advantage of. And this is a shock to the Israelites. This was not what they. This is this was a shock to them when when John the Baptist preached to him and said, "You you brood of vipers, you 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 ungodly, who have warned you to come out here to hear the message?" Jesus says the same thing to them. You think that the scriptures are going to give you life? You think that you're somehow living in a good life? And here Isaiah is saying the same thing. There's not enough to have you please God on your own. And verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare unto him? And here he's saying, you know, hey, who do you who who am I? And this is a question that we all have to be able to answer. Who is God? He is spirit. He is truth. He is not a physical being. And that makes it hard for us as human beings. We like to see something. You know, God, just show me who you are. Show me something that I can worship you. And then we will worship whatever that something is, thinking, okay, this is God, the symbol of God. I want to worship it. And this is what happened to the, to the bra, uh, brazen, uh, brazen serpent in the wilderness when the people were being bit by snakes. And God says, if you look up at the serpent, you'll be healed. And they started worshiping it. And they, you know, they turned into an idol for them. Well, if God used it to be the healing, it must represent God's power. They didn't think it was God necessarily, but they rep thought it represented his power. I've seen Christians do the same thing with the Bible. The Bible is so special, and it is a special book. The or the cross. You know, the Bible is a very special book. Yeah, but we don't worship the book. We worship the God of the book. And the same thing with the cross or even the sanctuary. I've had people get, you know, we can't do anything in this except have church. I've seen people get upset if you use it for anything other than church services. No, it's just a place where we come to meet God who is above and beyond all things. And this is very important for us. That God is so much bigger, we can't compare him to anything. We can't look at anything. We can't look at a catechism and say, this is how I worship God. I follow this catechism. I worship God by singing songs. I worship God by whatever it is that we look at him because he is above everything. In verse 19 it says, the workman melts the graven image and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casts silver change. In other words, they're making an idol. They're melting the gold and casting the, casting the, the image. In Isaiah's day, Israel was worshiping idols. It was one of the problems they had. They worshiped idols instead of worshiping the God. And this is where God is saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm God. You know, you can't make anything that looks like me. You can't make anything to help you focus on me. I am me. And this is the hard, this really is hard for us at times to be able to sit down and say, God, I want to pray to you. What do I pray to? And, you know, we get accused sometimes of just speaking out to the, to the empty nothing because there's nothing in front of us. At least with an idol, they go, okay, there's your God. I see something. I don't think, I don't believe it's a God, but I see something that you're praying to. You're not, you're not insane. And we're, we're accused of being insane because we pray to, as far as most people can see, nothing. And that's our prayer. We're praying to nothing physical, but we're praying to the God of the universe. 
But, you know, it, sometimes it is hard just praying, God, please listen to me, help me. And it is not an easy thing to worship God at, at times because of that. He says, he that is impoverished, so impoverished that he has no obligation or sacrifice, he chooses a tree that will not rot, seeks unto him that is a cunning workman to prepare the graven image, that he shall not be moved. So he goes, if they're so poor they don't have gold, they go out and, and get a tree and have it carved to make an idol. And it, it, this one kind of makes me wonder. I mean, it's bad enough melting an idol and creating an idol, but to take a piece of wood and create an idol just seems insane to me. I mean, the whole idea of a golden idol is too, but, you know, taking a piece of wood. Cut down this tree, the tree couldn't protect itself, and I'm going to make an idol. And I'm going to worship to that idol. In this case, he's saying these people are going out and taking a piece of wood, making a god and worshiping it. And, you know, we've got to be careful because we don't actually put gold and wood statues, but we make idols. We have things, an idol is anything that we place higher than God. And for a lot of people, it's our stuff. It, well, it can be anything. It can be a monument. It can be my stuff. It can be my job. It can even be my family. Even some good things. Uh, my righteous devotion to reading the Bible might become, a, might become an idol. Because I'm reading it for the wrong reasons and for the wrong purpose. I'm not reading it to get to know God. and I'm reading it just to say, God, I did it. I read my however many chapters today, and you know, I, I even spoke to you for a couple minutes. Or at least I said, thought I was. And we've got to be careful because all our religious service can become an idol. It did with the Pharisees. God, look at us. Look how good we are. We give lots of money. We help the poor we, as much as possible or that we want to. We do this. We do that. God, we're as perfect as can be. And God says, I don't really know you. You're, you're serving an idol. You're serving your good works. And this can be a problem for us. What is our God? Who is our God? And we need to be very careful. Because I've seen so many people, you know, I've seen people who have a car that becomes their idol. Polishing it every other day. Making sure it's washed. If there's a speck on it, they're, they're wiping it off. Uh, their, their possessions. TV becomes an idol for a lot of people. God, God, I didn't have time to read my Bible, but I did have time to read, you know, watch TV for 10 hours a day. God, I didn't have time to go to your church, but man, I, I, I had plenty of time to watch TV. I'm all caught up in all my TV watching for the moment. And, you know, and God is saying, don't put anything above him, no matter what it is. And we need to be careful because in our day and age, we seem to think we don't have idols and we've got plenty of them if we're not careful. And God says he is to be number one. Verse 21 says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath, you, hath it not been told from the beginning that, and you understand, and, and you not understand from the foundation of the earth? So here he's going, you know, pay attention. Don't you know this? Haven't you heard it? That God has been there from the beginning. And the thing about this is very important for us to understand is God did not start at the beginning. Time started at the beginning, but not God. God has always existed. You know, we think of him as you know, from the beginning, but he is before the beginning. He is beyond the beginning, and he will be after time is, is gone. He will still be there in, in ministering to us. And from this, from this, verse 22 says, It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth 
and the inhabitants of their floor are as grasshoppers that stretched out over the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. God sits above the circle of the earth. This is one of these verses that kind of tells us that God really told us from the beginning that the earth is round. Because if you're thinking that the earth is flat, you're not going to describe it as a circle. It was known to them that it was a circle. And it has been known throughout, the, throughout history, educated people that knew mathematics and science knew the world was round. Most people didn't care. You didn't travel far enough to matter that the world was round. But if you were a seafarer and you learned to take readings of the stars and, and navigate, you knew that the world was round. And it's been known for a long time. Here we see the circle of the earth, not the flat of the earth, not the horizon of the earth, but the circle of the earth is quoted. And this is very important for us to understand and he goes, the people are like grasshoppers that stretched out over heavens as a curtain and spread out as a dwelling, a tent of dwelling. So you're going, there's lots of people, but they're just grasshoppers. Lots of people in this world, but there's grasshoppers. And you know, grasshoppers aren't, aren't vicious. They're not, you know, they can be a nuisance. They can be a problem, but they're not, a, they're not going to hurt people. And God says, here's a bunch of grasshoppers to me, nothing. Uh, literally, I can step on you. I could, I could kill you. It's not a, not a problem to me. And this is really to get a picture. How big are you, God? Everything man does is a grasshopper. You know, just like us, we look at a grasshopper. To the grasshopper, this world is huge and, and, and vast, and who knows what they think. You know, but if they were to think, look how big my territory is, and look at all these big, big monuments, and we just can step on them or gather them up, sweep them away, uh, collect them. That's God when he looks at us. Uh, we are nothing before him. And in verse 23 it says, and brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. He says, all your leaders are nothing. They're vanity, empty. All these people who think they're something important. And there are a lot of them, rulers and business leaders and rich people who all think they are the greatest thing since sliced bread and that everybody should give them honor, God says, you guys are nothing. You know, you think you have everything, you have nothing. You think you are great, your, your great power means nothing to, to me. God says he owns the cattle, the, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills that they're on. You know, he owns everything that's in the hills. He, he doesn't look at anybody's wealth as being important. He rule, he's the ruler of the nation. He looks down at the people of the earth and says, who are you? Who do you think you are? You, you're just in charge of the United States. I, I control the entire earth, all the, all the planets, the entire universe, and I control it all. And you, and you think you're a big shot running America, China, Russia? You guys are nothing. And this is really, to, this whole chapter is to put God in his place and us in ours. And we need to be very careful. I don't have anything to offer God. Nothing. The richest man in the world has nothing to honor God, even if he gave all of his wealth to God, it's still nothing. The richest, the most powerful person, if he gave God all of his power, God's going to say, I gave it to you in the first place and I had the power, so it doesn't mean anything. Verse 24, yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown, yea, they, their stock will not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. In other words, you think you're going to be something? You think you're great? 
And God says, your, your reputation's going to die. Your reputation's going to be gone. And we think about that. We have some people that we know from history. How much do we really know about them? We know a couple of events. A couple of events out of there. And the sooner we are, the, you know, the closer we are to the more we might know. But we look at somebody like George Washington, the, the first president of our country, the one that made, made a lot of direction. How much do we know about him? Not a whole lot, unless you're a real history buff. Ha, jo, uh, Jefferson, Hancock, Adams, all these men, you know, and even though some of them were bigger players than Washington, we don't know anything about them. Uh, we go back even further and go to Hannibal and to Alexander the Great and, and uh, Napoleon and go, wow, I know they fought a couple battles. I might, if I really know my history, I might be able to tell you some of the battles they fought in. But what do we know about them? Not a whole lot. And it keeps going back. Our reputations, we think we're building this great reputation. We're going to be remembered for the rest of eternity. And get a couple hundred years away and people go, who? Who are you talking about? Uh, oh, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember. You're talking about that guy that built that business over there. Yeah, it's got his name. It's got her name, but don't know anything about them. They built a business. Who cares? And this is what God's saying. You know, you're not even going to be planted. You're not going to remember. You're not going to grow. You're lucky to be remembered by your family after a couple generations. Yeah, we had a great, 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 great grandpa. He was pretty famous. I don't remember what he did, but he was, he was well known back in the day. And your own family ceases to remember you after a while. And God's saying, I, you're not going to take root. You're going to, and all I got to do is blow on, your, blow on it, and you're, and you're blown around like stubble as just a whole bunch of shaft, wheat shaft and, and wasted garbage. I just blow on it, and you're gone. And this is what Solomon was telling us in the book of Ecclesiastes. He goes, I've gained all this stuff. I've built all these things. And who really knows me? Now, we know him because we have a lot of stories in the Bible, and we study the Bible. Outside of people who study the Bible, most people don't know who Solomon is. They don't know who David is. They don't know who Abraham is. They don't know who Isaiah is or was. <laughs> uh, you know, because for us, it's important. We want to know these people, so we study their lives. We look into their life. The average person goes, yeah, Solomon, who cares? Yeah, I think, I think he was a king of Israel, if they even know that much. And they will look at it that way. And then in verse 5, God goes, to whom will you liken me? And shall I be equal, says the Holy One. God again says, Who, who's like and what is like me? And this is where it is so important for us as Christians. We get in there and we say, God, you are so much bigger than anybody else. You are so much stronger than anybody else. There is nobody to liken God to. And this is how I say it so often, and we've heard it me say it so many times. Whatever we think about God, we're too small. However big we think he is, we're too small. However powerful we think he is, we're too, too, he's too weak in our mind. Uh, however all-knowing he is, we, we're way too low. Because we cannot conceive of God. He is infinite. And we as, in, as finite beings cannot truly comprehend infinity. We talk about eternity. We talk about unending. But we always have something in mind. You know, something in our mind that gives us what that boundary is. Because we're finite. We cannot comprehend something that has no beginning, no end. You know, theoretically, we know that a line has no beginning, no end. It goes on forever. But we're even saying that we don't really comprehend what that means. And God 
even though it goes on forever, God encompasses that line. Yeah. Now that's hard for us to understand. How can God give us all of himself and not be diminished? Every single person that is in a relationship with God has all of God dwelling in them, and God is not diminished any part by dividing himself up because he is infinitely greater than anything out there. He is infinite. And you can divide infinity by any number and still have infinity. So God can, as an infinite God, can divide himself, give himself fully to every single person that knows him as, as Lord and Savior and not be diminished. That is hard to, that's hard to fathom. We can't fathom that. We can't understand how you can divide anything up and not have less of it than you started with. And yet God can divide himself up and not be any less when he gets done dividing himself up than he was before he started dividing himself. Because he is infinite. He is bigger and more strong and stronger and more powerful than we can even comprehend. And this is what he's, Isaiah is saying. Who are you going to compare God? You know, what is he equal to? How can I describe God? I can't. When we start talking about the Trinity, and I've said this over and over, we talk about the Trinity. I can give you all the verses about the Trinity, prove to you the Bible teaches the Trinity and not understand it any better when we're done than we did to begin with. All I can tell you is the Bible says so. The Bible says it is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all God. They're all equal. And they are one because we have one God. How that's true? Don't know. It's beyond me. And as I've said, I'm glad that there are things that I can't explain in the Bible. Because if I could explain everything about God, God's not big enough. I would be God because I can explain him. I can't explain him. And I take great pleasure in that I can't explain, explain him because that tells me he's bigger than anything I can comprehend. And that is good news. Verse 20 says, 6 says, Lift up your eyes on high and behold who has created these things that brings out the host by number who calls them by their names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, no one fails. He goes, look at the mountains. Look at the skies. Look around you and you see God. This is the thing that really gets to me when I hear people say, well, all of this came by accident. All of this design came by accident. And they say, we have faith. That takes a lot of faith to believe that everything just popped into existence, randomly popped into existence, and randomly ordered itself to be the perfect environment. And people will go, well, you know, look at, look at what has evolved. All these things have wings and arms, and they're all the same exact structure underneath. Maybe not the outside of it, but the bone structure is virtually the same. And you're going, all right, all of them have the same. And they'll go, well, see, that just proves they all have the same beginning. Now, to me, it proves that they have a great design. The perfect design was reused over and over again. And this is important for us to understand. People who study architecture look at buildings and say, this was built by so-and-so architect. This was designed by so-and-so architect. How do you know? Well, look at this line and this feature and this feature. They recognize it by the design. And yet, the world will not recognize God by his perfect design. They want to go, well, this all just happened by accident. And you know, I just can't understand how they can go there. You know, 
all this, all this designed, you know, the earth is exactly how far it needs to be from the, from the sun to get just the right heat, to not be too hot, not to be too cold. The earth is tilted at just the right angle for life to survive and, and not have an overly cold north and south and have perfect days and, and growing seasons. There's just enough water. Our atmosphere is just perfectly balanced with just enough oxygen and just enough nitrogen so it doesn't burn off. Because if it had more oxygen, we light a match and the entire atmosphere would, would ignite and, and burn off. And yet it just accidentally happened according to the people who don't believe God. You know, we look at the very cell of the body that is so intricately designed that there's no part of the cell that can be done without. And people want to say, well, that just accidentally happened. All the intricate parts, all the intricate machine, bio, biological machinery inside our body that would have nothing to do if it wasn't for that cell just accidentally popped into existence at the same moment to have a living cell. And they go, we have faith. Yeah. I love the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Because I don't. You know, I do not have that much faith. And when he starts pointing out all the things that you have to, the idiocy you have to believe to be an atheist, it's amazing. It is just amazing. And I've presented atheists with this whole idea. Do you really believe this happened? And I love to ask them, would you, would you like to shuffle a deck of cards, 52 cards, and I'll shuffle them back into order? It's better, it, was e it would be easier to shuffle a deck of cards in, back into order than to think that a cell with a DNA in the cell could ever come together randomly. There's too many pieces, way too many pieces. There's 52 cards is less pieces than what would have to be randomly shuffled around in a cell to come up with something that works. And yet they want to say it is accidental. And they keep talking about these missing things that nobody has found because they're no longer in existence, but there's got to be a missing thing. Why? Because they won't accept that God created. So there has to be something missing. And when they find it, they go, this has to be, the, this is part of the missing. And it never is. It never is. And yet they want to try to say, and it says, God calls everything by name. This is amazing. God, the creator of the universe and keeping everything in control, calls everything by name. Jesus tells us he knows the number of hairs on our head, and for some of us that's getting, getting less quickly. He knows everything about us. He knows everything that's going to happen to us that has happened, will happen, and is happening. And he knows it all and cares. That's the amazing thing. He cares. He knows all the stars by name. All, however many of them there are, and we don't know how many there are, and he knows all the stars by name. He created every one of them. He knows all the animals by their names. And he, you know, and this is really amazing. Isaiah saying, look around you. Look at the God who created all of this. And worship. Understand that he is great. Verse 27, why say you, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord. My judgment is passed over from my God. In other words, God doesn't see what I'm doing. He doesn't bring judgment. And this is something we all have to be careful of. It is easy to think we got away with something because God does not punish us immediately. We looked last night at David after Bathsheba. Over a year before he gets his judgment falling on him, God gives us time to repent on our own before he brings judgment. Sometimes he brings judgment immediately. 
If I get into a car drunk, I might get into an accident and kill somebody and have some serious consequences right away. Sometimes the consequences come many years later when I want to have something happen and it cannot happen anymore because of how I've messed up my life. And even when we get into that car and have an accident, there may be consequences that we never even dreamt of down the road, beyond the immediate. And this is something, and we see people who have been severely injured, uh, legs crushed, backbones broken. They may get over it to a degree, but they are in pain for the rest of their life. And that's a consequence they pay, face for doing something stupid. And all sin has consequence. Some are more severe physical, some are more severe emotional, uh, some are more severe just in our sociological. You know, how do I deal with other people? And I've been hurt so many times that I will not trust somebody because of my sin has led me down the wrong path. Very interesting that God says, I'm greater than all of this, and it is not hid from me. And God says, I am not slow to, to judgment. You all may think I'm slow, but he says, I am not slow. Canaan was given 400 plus years before God judged them by bringing Israel in to conquer them. He says, I'm going, to let your, I'm going to let your sin get to full fruition, and then I'm going to destroy you. And how many times has God let us keep going down the path, the wrong path, keep going down the wrong path, and he says, okay, you're not repented. Here's your judgment. Here's your punishment. And it comes, and it always comes. God always has a day of reckoning. Usually on this earth, but at the very least, it'll be at the white throne judgment when he says, you've rejected me, you're now going to hell. There will always be a day of reckoning before God. Then again in verse 28, you have, have you not heard, have you not known that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Again, he's talking about how strong God is. God never gets tired. And we think about this. He is in control of all the universe. And if there's more than one universe, he's in control of all the universes. And he never gets tired. You know, he's, he's out there holding everything together. He holds the very atoms together. And he doesn't get tired. And he's held them together for at least 6,000 years. And he doesn't get tired. You know, if he got tired and said, well, I've got to put this down for a moment, the whole world would explode. You know, he doesn't get tired of holding the world together. He doesn't get tired of dealing with his lost children. And we may try his patience a little bit because of our stubbornness. We may try him, but he still loves us. He still holds us. He still cares. And he says, I'm not going to release you. Once we have everlasting life, we have everlasting life. And a lot of people want to go, well, you know, I, I took it, I can, I can reject it. No, once you've taken it, it's, you have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If it's not everlasting life, God lied to us. And I don't believe that he lied to us. He's never lied to me anywhere else. I don't believe he's lying to me about everlasting life. I can't throw it away, I can't lose it, I can't get rid of it, I can, I can mistreat it, I can, I can shame it, I can trample it underfoot, but if I truly am his child, I cannot lose eternal life. Now it is possible that I'm not his child. 
Jesus said to the people, you know, you cast out demons, you said all these good things, you did all these good works, you fed the poor, you, you clothed the poor. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. It is possible that you never know him, but you cannot lose the, your salvation. Plain and simple. It's everlasting. It's a work of grace performed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And when I believe that I'm a sinner, I accept that I deserve punishment, and I repent of my sin and ask Jesus Christ into my heart and make him the Lord and Savior of my life, he comes in, he dwells with me, and I have a gift that is eternal to never end. And this is so wonderful. God doesn't fate, he doesn't grow weary, and we can never understand his knowledge. We don't even begin to understand his knowledge. We will never understand it. We will spend all of eternity and never know all that God knows because he's so infinite. He is so all-knowing that we can't even begin to fathom what he knows. And what a blessing it is to have a God that's that big. He's not my God sitting there over in the corner that I'm bowed down to praying to. Oh, there he is. See, that's my God. No, he doesn't look like much, but, you know, it's only the representation of my God. You know, my God is actually bigger than that, but that's what I pray to. No, our God is so big that a representation won't do him justice, so he says, don't do it. You shall make no graven images. You shall melt, bow down to any graven image. And God says, because why? He is greater than. So much greater than. And he doesn't look like anything that we can comprehend. What does God look like? Who knows? I don't know what he looks like. He's a spirit. And until I have spiritual eyes, I cannot see God. And when I get to heaven, I don't know what I'm going to see, but I'm going to have a spiritual body and eyes that can see the spirit world. And I'll get to see God in his infinity. What will I see? I don't know. I don't know if I'll see everything about God because I won't be infinite, so I still can't see all of God. Even in heaven, I won't see all of God because he's infinite. I would have to be infinite to see the infinite God, and I'm not going to be infinite in heaven. I am going to be a created being that worships God. And that is what we have to understand. We will never truly see God. We'll see the Holy Spirit. We'll see Jesus. But the Father will only see what he desires for us to see. And what that will be, I don't know. Because the only way to see him, if we were bigger than him, is the only way we'd be able to see all of him. Or at least as big. And we're not going to be that big. He is infinite. Even in all of eternity, he will be infinite. I don't know what we'll see. We'll see something. It talks about him being seated in the throne of heaven, so there's something that we will see, but it won't be him. It will be like Moses when he said, God, show me yourself. And God says, I'll show you my back parts. And he calls out his, his name to Moses as he walks away. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm all loving. I've got full tender kindness. And that's all that Moses got to know about him. And even that was bigger than we could even fathom. All right, God, you're gracious. How gracious are you? More gracious than I can ever use up. More gracious than the entire world's ever going to use up. God, you love us. You have mercy on us. How much mercy? More than you'll ever need. You know, how, how, how much do you love us? More than you can even imagine. I gave my son to die for you. I came to die for you. What awesome power. God became a man so that he could die for us, so that he could buy us back because of our sin. And he did it willingly. What mercy, what grace he shows us, it's unfathomable for us to try to understand. And this is so important. Verse 29 says, He gives power to the faint 
And them that have no might, he increases strength. He gives power to those that faint. You know, when I get out there and say, God, I've just got too much, too much trials. I can't make it. God says, yeah, but it's my power. I'm going to give you power. You're not going to faint. I'm going to give you the power to get over it when we turn to him. If we try to do it in our own strength, we'll faint. If I try to do it my own way, I'll faint. I'll, I'll get crushed. But when I turn to God, it says, oh, ha, glad, glad you called. Here, here's your power. Here's your way through it. Here's your strength. Just, just get inside me, hide. We'll, we'll walk through it. I'll carry you through it. Whatever it takes, you'll get through it because I don't weary, I don't faint, and I give the power to get through the trials. There hath no temptation overtaking you, but such is a common demand, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which, with, uh, with, above that which you are able to withstand, but will with the per- temptation provide a way of escape. His power is that escape. He gives it to us, and he gives it to us freely. We're fainting, he says, here, have a little bit of power. Just, just a little bit, just enough to get through the, through the trial and then some. You know, when we get out there and we look around and say, wow, God, you are so great, you are so powerful, you've got control of everything, and it's wonderful, and I'm at peace because you're in control. When we fully understand how powerful God is and that he is in control and he gives us the strength, we have great peace. What can knock over God? Nothing. What is too hard for God to handle? Nothing. What, what has he promised? The all-powerful, almighty God that nothing overcomes says, I'll give you the power so that you don't faint. I'll give you the, over, the power so that you can increase your strength to get through the problem. What a promise. And that is a promise. God, I have this problem. I need your help. Our problem is we don't go to God often enough to ask for help. You know, we usually go, well, you know, I deserve what I'm getting. I don't deserve to be victorious. So, God, you just kind of stay up there. I'm not really thinking about you because I am just getting what I deserve. And, you know, so, God, I'm not going to ask for a blessing. And God's saying, I want to bless you. I want you to dwell in me. I want to give you this. I want to give you everything that you desire. And if we will just ask, if we will just go to God and say, God, I need you. And it doesn't take much more than that. So many people get saved by just hearing the word of God and saying, God, you know, those crazy nuts were true, and you really do love me. Come in and prove yourself. And God, that will be enough for God to come in and prove that he is God. He will come in and he'll sweep in and say, I was just waiting to be asked. I'm just waiting for you to give up what you want for me. And he makes us a new creation that trusts in him. And he gives us that power. He gives us that strength. And then this ends with one of the most famous verses out there. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How do we do all these things? We wait on God. We just go to God and go, God, I just need you. And God gives us the strength. This is not me all of a sudden getting the strength. This is God saying, going back to the previous verse, he gives the power. He gives the strength. I just stand and wait. God, I can't do it. I need you. Come on in here and give me the strength. Give me the power. I'm clothed in your righteousness. I, and I'm, I'm indwelled in you and you indwell me. God, thank you. I can get through everything because you're the one that's going to get me through it. You're the one that's going to help me. You're the one that has got this all under control. Not me. And everything I look at, if I think I'm in control, 
My life is miserable when I think I'm in control. I get knocked down, tossed about, beat up when I think I'm in control. And God says, hey, I'm right here. Wait on me. And you will run and not be weary. You will fly and, and like on the wings of the eagles. You shall run and, uh, and you will renew your strength. You shall walk and not faint. It is so much fun walking with God. We're walking in God even better. All I do is hide in him and he walks me where he wants me to be. He guides me. He leads me. And I get the blessings. And that's the wonderful news. God does all the work and I get the blessings. He empowers me. He gives me blessings. He says, well, I did all this. You get the rewards. God doesn't need the rewards. He says, you let me do this. I'm going to give you the rewards. And I'm going to make you strong in doing it. And the more we walk with God, the more we really come to the understanding of this verse. When I first start out, I'm weak. I know I'm weak. I sin every time I turn around. I don't have any victories in my life. And God says, just, just wait. Just wait on me. And slowly we start getting more and more victory in our life. We start getting successful through the trials. And all of a sudden we look around and say, wow, God, you're doing a lot in my life. I'm opening my mouth and telling people about you. I'm actually getting excited about reading your word. I get excited about uh, worshiping you. I get excited about praying to you. I love coming to meet God's people. I love worshiping God. And being in the middle of just being in the presence of God is so much fun to come and be with God's people that are thinking the same way, acting the same way as far as the love of God. Now, we all haven't got the same victories. We all haven't had the same issues. But God loves all of us. He's giving all of us strength. He's giving all of us power. And we just need to learn to relax and surrender to him. And this is the most important thing. We surrender to God. And too many people ask me all the time, well, how do you surrender to God? And my answer is always the same, just do it. Once you learn to surrender to God in an area, you kind of kick yourself saying, this was so easy, why didn't I do it before? And the idea is if, if the police were outside this door saying, come out with your hands up, we have a choice. We can go out and surrender with our hands up or we can say, come and get me, I'm, I'm not coming out. And I'm going to suffer if I'm not coming out. Tear gas, uh, beat up, sending the dogs, whatever it might be, I'm going to suffer if I don't surrender. And if we don't surrender to God, we suffer. God makes life miserable for us, and we make life miserable for ourselves. God, I am not giving up. I am not surrendering. I will take the consequences for not surrendering. Because I think I know what they are, and they're always more than I think they are. If I don't surrender to God, the consequences are always worse than I expected them to be. Always. You know, God, I'm going to go out drinking, and all it means is a hangover. I can deal with that. And all of a sudden, you find a whole bunch of friends, and you buy them all kinds of alcohol, and you're, you're now broker than you ever thought you'd ever be. You have the hangover, and you wrecked your car on the way home. You, know, you never know what the consequences are going to be. And even if you just had the, the hangover, there's all kinds of other consequences that you have to deal with. And God is saying, I will give you power. I will give you strength. Just wait on me. And that's the important part of this verse. They that wait upon the Lord. I just wait and let him guide. Let him lead. I get into so much trouble myself when I don't wait on God and I do things the way I think the best thing to do. Well, God, you know, I really need this this item, so I'm just going to go out and buy it. I don't know how I'm going to afford it. I'm going to sacrifice someplace, but I'm going to buy this. And it becomes a weight. 
You know, we go out and we buy the house on time that's more than we can afford. And we're making payments on it for the rest of our life. <laughs> and we're going, God, I'm just I'm really sorry. I really shouldn't have done this. And God says, your consequence now is you get to pay for that thing. You're, you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay your debt. You made a vow. You're going to pay your debt. And you're going to learn to get by with the consequences of that debt. You're going to learn to, con to pay the consequences of that sin. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders Uriah, and God says, the sword's never going to depart from your family. You're, you're, you're going to have one within your own family rebel against you, and he's going to go sleep with your concubines and your wives. You're going to have trouble all the days of your life, and it's your fault, David. You sinned, and this is the consequence for your sin. Oh, how bad is our consequences for our sins? Think of all the different things we did and have the consequences we faced for our sins. And it's you know, we can all look at things that we did and go, wow, that's the consequence for my sin. That's the consequence for me not going before you, God, and praying. This is my consequence for not waiting for you, God. And it's important for us to understand there's consequences, but there's grace. There's grace and mercy, even in the consequences. And all things work together for good. Even when I'm suffering the consequences of my sins, there's something good that God is going to bring out of it. It may just be my long suffering being witnessed by people and saying, wow, that person goes through a lot, but they still love God. That might be all it is. Or, and it could be much better. It can be much better that God can say, you, th you thought this was all bad. Let me show you how it is for good. And this is what is important. I wait on God and he gives me strength. If I forget to wait on God and go through consequences and turn to God and now I wait on God, God still comes in and says, I'm going to turn the consequences to some kind of good. Maybe not for me, but they'll be turned for good. And this is our promise. God says all things work together for good. Not some things, not the things I do right, not, not most things, but all things work together for good. Even when I cause it, it will work together for good. Even when it's a consequence of my sin, it, something good will come out of it may not be the good that I would have liked. It may not even been the good that God would have wanted if I had been obedient. But a good thing will come out. And this is the most important thing. Wait on God. He's all-powerful. He's strong. He knows what he's doing. And if I wait on him, he will give me strength to get through what I'm going through. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. Lord, teach us to wait. Teach us to wait on the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God that can guide and walk us through and, have, and has good plans for us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.